I have a question for you. What does your inner voice sound like? Is it motivating? Does it encourage you? Or does it put you down? Today's episode is all about how we, as parents, could harness our inner voice. Welcome to episode 31 of the Curious Neuron Podcast. Welcome to the Curious Neuron Podcast, parenting advice that is backed by science. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I'm the founder and your host. I have a doctorate degree in neuroscience, and I'm a mom of three. My goal is to bring you information from research that will help you parent your child. Whether you just had a baby or you have a teenager, Curious Neuron is here to answer your questions. Hi friends, welcome back. Today's episode is about chatter or our inner voice, our negative inner voice. And I read a book by Ethan Cross called Chatter and I knew that I had to speak with him because so much of it resonated with me. I sometimes compare parenting to being a professional athlete where you have moments that you struggle because your child might might be acting out or it's a difficult moment because all children are having moments at the same time and you might be stressed because of work or you haven't slept and that moment even if you've trained <laughs> for parenting for a couple years and you have children that are older that is a moment where the mental aspect kicks in just like an athlete um, just like at the end of a marathon or a triathlon it's you know, it becomes very mental. And if you don't regulate your emotions or if you don't have that motivating talk, um, those moments become even harder as a parent. And that's why I was excited to speak to Ethan Cross. Not only is his research fascinating, um, but his book kind of summarizes everything in such a beautiful way um, that makes it easy for us as parents or anyone to implement what he's learned through research about our inner voice. So um, before we get to my discussion or my chat with him, I just wanted to address a few things. Um, first, if you head on to our website at curiousneuron.com and click on podcast, you could scroll to the end of the page. I have added uh, quite a few reviews that people left. Um, I have to apologize to you. I had no idea that the app I was using, so I'm in Canada, was only showing me reviews from Canada. So whenever I was um, inviting you to leave a rating and review the podcast, I was only seeing what was updated on the Canadian app. But if I log on to my, my podcast through iTunes, I didn't know that I could select different countries and see them separately. So I would like to thank everyone who's been leaving a review and rating this podcast. I love reading your comments. Um, for example, Mary Suri, thank you for writing that. Happened to come across this podcast recently and really enjoyed it. Great to see evidence-based research discussions to back recommendations. Guests on the show are, very, are also very well-educated and have great conversations. Then we have Fabib Arato, who says this podcast is amazing. It's easy to listen to, but it packs an amazing amount of information. I'm glad I found it. And uh, Barbie TPT wrote, my husband and I love this podcast. We learn so much and are extremely grateful. And these are the parents of a two-year-old daughter. So thank you to everyone who has taken the time to write a review. As a thank you, I would like to keep reading these ratings and reviews on the podcast to thank you. If you head onto the website and see your rating 
placed on my page, send me an email at info at and I will send you a thank you gift, which is chapter one and two of my new ebook called Better Me, Better Parent. And you can find this ebook uh, on my website when you click on services. This ebook is basically a six um, part book that guides you from understanding how you were parented creating parenting goals, working on mindset, um, understanding how different parenting styles impact your child, and lastly, helps you build a parent-child relationship. We pulled out all the research that we could find on these topics and also found some questionnaires that help guide you. So you can find that ebook on my website at curiousnorm.com and click on services. If you are enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate it and leave a review. It really means the world to me. And it's so wonderful to read um, your feedback and, and find out if you are or you're not enjoying this podcast. And if you'd like to hear more from Curious Neuron, you can head on to Instagram and follow me at Curious underscore Neuron. And you can also follow specifically just the podcast, if that's what you're interested in, at Curious Neuron Podcast on Instagram. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro. The Neuro is the first health sciences institution in the world to commit to open science, an approach to research that ensures scientific knowledge is shared widely and transparently. And I'm so happy that we have um, the support of the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute, because just like us here at Curious Neuron, we do believe in open science. And that's why I, as a passion and a mission, translate knowledge for our parents. Let's move on to our interview with Ethan Cross. He is an author, a scientist, and a teacher. Ethan Cross is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He is an award-winning professor and best-selling author. You could find his information and links to his book and some of his research articles if you head on to curiousneuron.com. You'll find the show notes as well. Just click on episode 31 and all the links will be there for you. You can also find them in the show notes or the descriptions if you're using iTunes. Um, and you could just click the link there. I hope you enjoy our interview with Ethan Cross. Hi, Ethan. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I'm excited to talk about your book called Chatter and to discuss our inner voice and the research behind it, because even though this is something that applies to everybody, I think as parents, it's important that we put thought into this, especially earlier on or when we have our first child, because as our child grows and starts having tantrums, for example, or even as a baby and when they're crying, I find that from experience, we tend to go towards more negative thoughts. And I think that it's easy as a parent to feel like you're doing something wrong or to get into that negative cycle of inner voice or your inner dialogue which is why I think it's an important topic for parents and a very relevant one. So can we begin um, by understanding a little bit more about you, your research, and why you decided to write this book? Sure. So um, you know, I run a lab at the University of Michigan called the University um, of Michigan Emotion and Self-Control Lab. And there are two, two big kinds of um, goals that we have in the lab that drive what kind of work we do. Uh, fundamentally, we focus on how people can align their thoughts, feelings, or behaviors with their goals, right? That's in my mind, what self-control is all about. And that's, you know, that covers a lot of terrain. So when we try to figure out what kinds of questions to ask, we, we ask ourselves, does this question, if we were able to answer it, have the potential to really move the needle in terms of our basic understanding of how the human mind works? So that's one driving motivation. The other is, 
if we answer this question, would we be able to help people living their lives in the world in some substantial way? And um, if, if an idea we have meets one of those two criteria, we do it usually. If it meets both, great. Uh, I should tell listeners, this doesn't mean that all the work we do ends up having those consequences. In fact, you know, <laughs> if you're familiar with the scientific enterprise, usually it does not have that um, outcome, but sometimes it does. And um, within that space, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand how we can manage manage our mind, our verbal mind, when it conspires against us. Put differently, I spent a lot of time focusing on why it is that sometimes when we introspect and turn our attention inward to make sense of our problems, something human beings are uniquely equipped to do, we don't end up coming up with solutions, but end up struggling instead, ruminating about the past, mm -hmm. catastrophizing and worrying about the future, flipping out over the present. We, in a certain sense, become um, victim of our own thoughts. And, mm -hmm. and I've tried to figure out why that happens. And arguably more importantly, uh, I've been really interested in understanding what people can do, what science tells us we can do to regain control of those inner monologues when they run, run awry and morph into what I call chatter, which is really the dark side of the inner voice. I love that. It's, it's, you know, the, the contrast between, like you said, the dark side versus where we do motivate ourselves is interesting. And I love the part of the book where you're highlighting the people walking around in New York and the different chatter that they have in their minds. Yeah. Um, the second thing that I find so interesting is how simple in a sense it is simple in quotes, I guess, because we have to work on it, but how simple the tools are that you offer um, for us in, in, in order to help with that chatter. Can we um, start with defining what chatter is for people? And also, I think what's interesting is linking it to cognitive skills, because you do link and talk about executive functions and working memory, and also have a situation where something is not working in parts of that, and then all of a sudden the chatter disappears. So let me define chatter. But before, but before I do it, I'm going to step even back and I'm going to widen the scope. I want to first talk about what it means to have an inner voice, what it means to have self-talk. Um, when I use that term and when scientists use that term, what we're talking about is the ability to use language silently in your mind. So rather than talking out loud in a way that other people can hear, we're talking in a way that only we are capable of, of deciphering and detecting what we're saying. And this capacity to, to talk to ourselves, so to speak, is um, serves a vital function that lets us do many, many different things. While researching the book and talking to people about it, I've often hear people said, just tell me how I could silence my inner voice. I don't want it anymore. In the book, I actually tell a story about someone who got that wish. They were really victimized by their inner voice, by their own admission. They worried excessively and ruminated. Uh, they ended up having a stroke that impaired their ability to use language temporarily. They lost their ability to talk to other people as well as the ability to talk to themselves. And initially, the person who had this stroke described the experience as strangely euphoric. Gone were all of her worries and ruminations. But as her days went on, she discovered that it was strangely disorienting too because she lost this tool of the mind that is so essential. So what does this tool allow us to do language? At the most basic level, it helps us keep nuggets of verbal information active in our heads. So 
Our inner voice is part of what we call our, our verbal working memory system. If you go to the grocery store and, you know, so we're all parents here and we got to think about like, okay, well, what do I need to buy? Cheese sticks, rice cakes, applesauce, you know, you don't say that out <laughs> loud. Usually you remind yourself of that to-do list in your head. Maybe sometimes you look at it on the phone, but if you don't have your phone or it's not charged like mine seldom is, that's what you do. Um, that's your inner voice, right? You're, you're, you're keeping this information active in your head. Um, without that capacity, verbal working memory, we'd be in big trouble. We also use our inner voice to do other things like simulate and plan. So before I give a presentation, I'll often go for a walk and rehearse what I'm going to say in my head. And I'll simulate different questions I might get from the audience and then relay answers. That is a huge, huge part of what I do to prepare. And I think it's a, a, one reason why I don't flop um, when I give presentations, because I engage in that kind of simulation. So that's another thing that our inner voice does. Um, our inner voice helps us control ourselves and motivate ourselves. Like when we're struggling with a different problem and we start talking to ourselves, all right, come on, here's, here's how you're going to do this. Like put the piece here, do this. That's important. And then finally, um, our inner voice helps us create a story that that makes sense of our experiences in the world and that gives our experience in this world, I'd argue, a sense of purpose and meaning. When bad things happen, we often stop to try to figure out why they happen and what is this rejection or um, insult? What does this mean for me and who I am and how I think about myself? And we use our inner voice to create a story that explains those experiences, that tells us who we are. So, you know, think about those different functions, keeping information active in your head, controlling yourself, planning and simulating, storytelling, like without that stuff, you're in big trouble. So the inner voice is is, is a real asset. Here's the problem. And I'd argue it's one of the big problems we, we all face. And I use that we term quite generously. Um, it's something that parents face. It's something that, you know, single millennials face. It's something that older folks face as well, grandparents and so forth. Oftentimes when we struggle, we turn inward to tap into this inner voice and to, to have it help us make sense of our experiences. But we end up spinning instead. We get stuck in a negative thought loop. If it's about the past, we call that rumination. If it's about the future, we call that worry. That's what chatter is all about, getting stuck. And when we get stuck, to go back to the part of your question about executive functions, it can have really debilitating consequences. It can consume our executive functions. Um, for, for, For listeners, I don't know how familiar they'll be. I assume they're pretty familiar with that concept, but but little, it, yeah. Okay. So, you know, the, the suite of mental resources we use to manipulate our attention and focus on the world uh, in a very crude sense. Um, have you ever tried reading a book when you're worried about something and read six pages only to get to the end and not be able to remember what you read? Has it ever happened to you? Exactly. Yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> I think that's so interesting because um, that's exactly what has happened to me and what I, I <laughs> was introduced to you just a few weeks ago. And I think the first thing that really struck me was it's, I knew that uh, there are things going on in my head, but I hadn't really identified it as something. And so for me just saying, Oh yeah, there are my thoughts. And so it took me a few days, just be like, Oh, like these little light bulbs that kept going off. I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's what you're talking about chatter. 
And then where do I go from there? So it's just listening for the beginning and then being able to recognize that there are these tools and that I can take it and actually use it positively. Whereas before it was kind of neutral. I wouldn't say that I was ever in, in high, well, there were situations where you can go into high anxiety, but generally it was neutral. And so it wasn't good or bad, but if you can push it towards being helpful and good for you, um, some of the tools that you give are just really fantastic and, and simple. So uh, what, what would you say is the first um, tool that you would, would recommend to a parent or any a caregiver, anyone who has these young children at home and feels that they, they don't have anyone to talk to and that they're kind of rehearsing things in their head? Um, well, the good news is that there are lots of tools that you can use. They're, most of them are pretty simple. They range in how effortful they are. And um, I like to think about using combinations of tools to help us. Um, but before I tell you that, I want to just very quickly go back to something you said, because I think it's really important for listeners, which is being able to identify when you're experiencing chatter and putting a label on it. I think this is one crucial um, crucial step in the process of harnessing chatter, right? Because if we don't really recognize that we're experiencing it, our motivation to use tools is so much lower. So just being able to stop and pause, hey, oh, chatter's coming, it's taking <laughs> hold. That can then motivate you to say, all right, well, what are my tools that I can use? to manage it. Uh, people often ask me like, you, you know, you just wrote a book on chatter. You studied it for 20 years. You've been thinking about it for 40. Do you ever experience chatter? And I, I usually pause before I answer. I look at them sternly and then I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a human, I'm a parent. Um, so, so yeah, I still experience chatter, but I've become through the research and, and writing and practice really good at identifying when it's happening or about to happen and then quickly using tools. And it does help me nip it in the bud um, quickly. So back to the question listeners have likely all been waiting for. Um, so what are the tools? You can break them down into three categories, things you could do on your own, ways of harnessing your relationships with other people, and then ways of navigating your physical spaces. So, and I'll give you a couple of examples from each. Uh, in the book, I talk about like 26 we won't be able to get through all of them unless I speak on five times my normal speaking pace, which wouldn't be good for anyone. Well, we would love to have you uh, come back at another time. So right. let's definitely dive into it and we will, we'll have you back and we'll go into more details. Great. Um, so tools you can use on your own. One tool that I think is really useful, and I personally use this quite a bit, is I try to give myself advice like I would give advice to a good friend. And I use language to help me do that. And what I mean by that is I, I silently try to coach myself through a problem using my own name and the second person pronoun you. Um, we know it's much easier for us to advise other people and take our own advice. We see this in studies over and over again. It's actually quite amazing to me when we do experiments and we ask people to tell us what they're thinking about, like describe the stream of thoughts flowing through your mind when they're worried about something. It's astounding what people say to themselves. They say things to themselves they would never say to another human being. Sometimes people don't even want to, they feel embarrassed to even write down or share what's going through their own mind. It's so ugly and so, so disparaging. And we're talking about normal, healthy people here. We're not talking about people who are clinically anxious or depressed or in some way, um, you know, really, really suffering from a clinical disorder. We're just talking about how, how difficult we could be on ourselves at times. 
What we find in our research is that when you use your name to refer to yourself, that switches you into a different mode of relating to yourself. It puts you in this kind of coach mode. If you think about when we use names and second person pronouns, words like you, we typically use those parts of speech when we think about and refer to other people. And so the idea is that when you use your own name, it's activating the the neural software slash hardware that we have for thinking about others. And that makes it much better for us to coach ourselves through problems in ways that um, uh, help us work through them. So that's one easy thing you could do. All right, Ethan, how are you going to manage a situation? Um, Again, the caveat, do it silently. Or if you want to do it out loud, make sure you're on your own, not walking down the city streets. Um, or any streets for that matter. Well, at least pretend you have earphones in. <laughs> and you have earphones. That's a saving grace for this. Uh, another thing you could do if you're dealing with an acute stressor, um, something you know has a, a finite beginning and end is something called temporal distancing. So uh, think about how you're going to feel a week, a month, a year from now after the stressor is over. Um, typically, we know we, we have this psychological immune system that in general tends to heal us. So our emotional reactions go up, but then they come down over time. And in, in studies, people, people demonstrate some basic awareness of this. So, you know, let's say I get rejected by a publisher or a journal, and it really stings. It's a paper I've been working on for months or years. Um, I thought it was great. And the reviewers tell me it was, you know, terrible, the worst thing that, you know, paper has ever seen. Um, I'm exaggerating, but you get the drift. I'm a sci- I, I've, I've been there. So yeah, I will you, share this with too. my scientists. So. Friends. <laughs> You've had this. So, um, you know, but what I know is I, I typically get upset for about a day and then the next day it's like, all right, where are we going next? What journal are we submitting to? How can we fix this? And so if I get that, that letter and I may start ruminating or worrying the rejection, I'll start off like, well, how am I going to feel about this next week or month from now? When you travel in time in your mind like that, what that does is it makes it clear that what you're going through right now is temporary. It will eventually pass. And that gives us hope. And, you know, when thinking about parents, I think this strategy is particularly relevant, right? Like, you know, the, 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 the kids won't stop screaming, but, but eventually they will, right? And, and you know they will because you've had that experience. And how are you going to feel tomorrow when you're horsing around and snuggling and tickling and and reminding yourself of that, widening the frame, so to speak. When we experience chatter, we get so sucked into the problem. We zoom in with tunnel vision. It can become really hard to think about that bigger picture. And when we look at the bigger picture, we often find solace. We often find solutions that give us comfort and make us feel better about our chatter. So those are two things you could do on your own, really simple tools you can use. Um, they, they, I should say they are simple. Um, that does not, that should not undermine their, um, their importance. You know, uh, my, my mentor in graduate school was Walter Michelle. He was the marshmallow, the guy who developed the marshmallow test. You give it mm-hmm. to yes. one cookie now, two cookies later, see which gets complaining. <laughs> and his, you know, he often said that the key to making self-control really effective is to make it simple, make it easy. We know that people don't like to do things that are hard in general, right? We tend to shy away from engaging in effortful acts. And so I think the more we can find these simple ways of 
pushing people's chatter around um, the better. Um, so um, let's go to another category of tools though, other people. And, and this is maybe less simple. So there is a gradient here. Uh, other people can be a really powerful uh, asset to us when we're experiencing chatter. Oftentimes the other person has objectivity that we don't have, the problems that we're dealing with, they aren't, and they can think about them more constructively. But there's a myth surrounding how we can get help from other people that often mucks it up in, in a pretty significant way. Many people think, um, due to messages that culture gives us, that the key to uh, working through chatter is to find someone else to vent your emotions to, to express your emotions. Um, I actually remember the first time we had our, our, well, the first time we had our first child, we only had our first child once, <laughs> uh, but prior to having our first child, we did something like we went to this, um, baby boot camp basically at the local, uh, University of Michigan oh, yeah. hospital, where it was like a day long event and they soup to nuts, like everything you need to know about being a parent. And, you know, it was a, it was a terribly boring workshop. I must say and it was <laughs> grueling, uh, but at one point they got to the topic of emotions and regulating emotions. And like my antenna went, oh, okay, this is I know this stuff, you know, so what are we going to talk about? And they got to the, um, the, the, the situation of well, what do you do when your child is, is screaming and won't go to sleep and you're sleep deprived and, you know, you're at your wits end. And, and the first thing they appropriately wanted to discourage parents of doing was like taking your child and like shaking them because that, mm -hmm. you know, that can like dislodge there, create some musculature problems that can have really terrible consequences. Um, but they emphasize, well, look, you got to get it out. It's really important to get that frustration out. So don't shake your baby. But you could do things like find a pillow and just like punch that pillow and get all the aggression out or, you know, freeze a milk carton uh, with the milk in it and take it out and get a hammer and bang that milk carton, you know, really get the frustration <laughs> out. Wow, like, I never thought of that. Take the image of a parent with like a hammer on a milk <laughs> carton. Does this look like while your baby's going to make the parent happier? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. here's what we've learned about venting our emotions when we're experiencing chatter. Expressing our emotions and venting, it, that strengthens the friendship bonds between two people. It feels good to know that there's someone out there who's willing to take the time to listen, to empathize, to validate what we feel. But if all you do is vent, you leave the conversation feeling great about your relationship with the other person, but you still got the problem you're struggling with, right? Because, oh my God, they still won't shut up. Bleep, bleep, bleep. Like, what do I do? Internally, right? yeah. So the key to the best kinds of conversations for helping people work through their chatter is to actually do two things. You do want to venture emotions to a certain degree. It is important to express how we feel. Those empathy connections are, are crucially important to our relationships, but we don't want to overdo it. And at a certain point, the person we're talking to can ideally try to try to help us reframe that experience push us to think about the bigger picture. Well, look, all parents go through this. It will pass. You just got to get through this period. Or here's what I do when my kid is, 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 is acting up like this. You know, I elbow my, my wife and I say, she's got to take care. I mean, you know, you can have fun with it, but you just want to get people out of that tunnel vision of how bad the experience is. 
And the more we can do to help them reframe that experience while still empathically connecting with them, the better. I think the, the value that comes from knowing about how these conversations can be optimized is twofold. Number one, it allows us to be a lot more deliberate about who we seek out for support when we're struggling with chatter, rather than haphazardly just trying to find anyone who will take the time to listen to us. Think really carefully about who you can consult, who is adept at both empathically connecting with you and helping you reframe. It's not going to be, in all likelihood, everyone in your social network. There are very few people that meet those criteria for me when I'm dealing with chatter. I've got this very select board of people I go to, but they're great at what they do. And so be deliberate about who you seek out support from. And on the flip side, knowing about these principles allows you to be a, a better chatter advisor to other people when they come to you for help. So you don't just listen and, 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 you know, Oh, tell me more about what happened and what you felt, right? Do a little bit of that, but at a certain point, try to help people reframe. So that's one way of, of managing your relationships with others. Um, there are lots of other things you could do there too, but I think that's probably the first um, nugget that comes to mind about how to leverage your relationships. I just wanted to go back to the to the sleeping baby for a second, because I think that, I mean, every parent goes through it when you have a, a new child and you, a newborn or even um, toddlers who are just not sleeping and it becomes very frustrating. And so what would be some tools that a parent could turn to in the middle of the night, they don't have anyone to call and um, maybe not hitting a, a pillow that might not be something that they're, uh, it might be an immediate reaction, but something that they could use over the long term uh, in the middle of the night. Um, in the middle of the night to deal with the frustration specifically surrounding the child. Yeah, because I th I found that really helpful when we when I was in the hospital. A very something something similar. A nurse came up to me and she wouldn't li let me leave the hospital until I had come up with kind of a, an action plan. Yeah what I was going to do in the middle of the night when it happens. Cause yeah. it's just like you, and, and you think, Oh, I'll be fine. I, I'm a very self-regulated person and you're Until not, you're you're, in that you moment. get really yeah. frustrated. Well, you know, the, the middle of the night is really tricky for managing chatter. There are some things you can do. So, but it is tricky in part because, um, you know, access to some of the, the, the resources that are typically very useful for managing our mind are, are, you know, not, our executive functions aren't performing optimally, so to speak, in the middle of the night, right? So um, one tool that I think can be helpful is uh, is something that I talk a little bit about the book, Affectionate Touch. And I think you can do that with your child. Mm. We know, and, I, and that serves double duty, both for soothing the child and soothing yourself. And so one of the things we know is that uh, affectionate touch, like, uh, you know, a, a kind of petting or caressing or hugging. This is one of the most primitive tools we possess for regulating how we feel. Uh, we know that when you embrace someone else that automatically through a bottom-up mechanism uh, elicits uh, a cascade of stress-fighting chemical reactions. Um, at the more conscious level, it reminds us that, oh, there's someone here I love who loves me. And so, you know, hold your baby and rock your baby and, and remind yourself of how wonderful this um, screaming child is at the <laughs> in your life. Um, that's one thing you can do. If you can make the commitment, I think this is where, you know, the planning and making the 
one thing that is often helpful for uh, ensuring that you are going to use a tool in a particular situation is to come up with a kind of action plan or what we might call in technical terms, an implementation intention. So identify the specific situations that you might experience chatter and be challenged by. And then, right, if this happens, then I will do this. So if my baby wakes me up screaming, then I will first mm-hmm. embrace them. I will, Then I will remind myself that it will be better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I will also normalize my experience. That's something else that can be really powerful. Mm-hmm. I talk about in the book, reminding yourself that this is a common feature of being a parent. It sucks for everyone, right? And, and it's part of what we do. And I think, you know, misery loves company. That can be really, soothing. I've always, <laughs> while writing my book, uh, you know, writing a book can be a pretty, uh, I, and I didn't anticipate this, it, it can be a lonely experience and a, a soul soul testing experience in many ways. And, and didn't you write it during the pandemic with children? <laughs> no, I, I finished it right before the pandemic ended. Um, oh. But I wrote it before with children. And um, it's just, you, you know, there's there's all sorts of vulnerabilities that are activated, even when you've been writing, you know, professionally for 20 years. Um, it's a different entity. In any case, being able to talk to other authors, scientist authors, to hear about what they've gone through and to hear about the similarities between our experiences, there's a comfort that you derive from that. So, so there are three strategies right there, right? Like temporal distancing, normalizing, touch um, that you can use. Try distant self-talk as well. In, when you get, if you get, if you read the book and you get through it, you know there's an appendix in the back that lists a bunch of different strategies. Twenty-six. That's not. There are more out there. Those are the 26 that I focused on, all science-based. We know that those strategies exist. What we don't know um, is how they optimally combine to help different people experiencing different kinds of situations in, in life. There's no rubric that I'm aware of, no scientific rubric that we can apply at this point in time to, you know, to say, okay, Cindy, here are the six strategies you should use when your baby's crying at three in the morning. And here are the three you should use when you get into an argument with your partner. This is where science is now actively trying to sort things out. And that is going to take some time because science moves slowly. While that is happening though, I think the challenge that we all face as parents, as human beings is to begin the process of doing some self-experimentation to figure out what are the strategies that work best for me in these different situations. And and that is a a process of self-discovery. I iterate through different strategies. Sometimes it's just two that are sufficient. Distance self-talk, temporal distancing, nips in the butt. Other times I've got to talk to my chatter board of advisors, the people out there who are skilled. And, And then so other times I've got to go out and do something in the world around me in nature to help me regulate. And so I think that is... Um, that's a process. And I, you know, for me, and I, and I, I'm hopeful for listeners, it's a, it's an exciting process that's filled with hope mm-hmm. because there is a lot we can do to, to help ourselves um, in this context. I, I think as I picture myself being a listener and, and listening to all of this, one question that comes to mind is I have a child and I want them to develop um, positive, you know, dialogue, inner dialogue and their inner voice. How how does it how does this develop in a child? And something that I I enjoyed from your book is how you spoke of your own upbringing and how your dad would say to go inside. 
and how you chose to do it differently because we all will do it differently. But how does a parent, um, so how does it develop in a child? And what can we do as parents to make sure that we become that positive voice for a child? Because I've, I've spoken with parents and often told them we need to be aware of how we speak to our children and the tools we offer them because we can become that inner voice. Yeah. So, you know, our inner voice is shaped by our caretakers, our culture, our friends. And so I think it is critically important for parents to, to be mindful of how they talk to their children and the messages they give them. Um, you know, according to many psychologists, one of the ways we first learn how to exert self-control is through our interactions with our parents and caretakers. Our parents say things to us and then our, uh, our parents say things to their children. Or no, let's take three. We say things to our children and they then repeat those things to themselves. And if you've got little kids, you've probably seen them, you know, when they're young, go into like a corner on the side and like start talking to themselves out loud and, you know, make believe play with their, with their action figures and dolls. You know, you shouldn't do this. No, you got to do play. Right. So, so that is part of this unfolding process of how messages get transmitted from parents and get inside kids' heads. They hear us. They repeat versions of those things out loud. And then at some point it becomes internalized in their mind. When they get older, messages from their friends seep into their mind in a similar manner. Um, Now, this isn't to say that it's unidirectional, that parents influence their kids' inner voice, and that's it. Actually, what kids say to parents can influence our our own inner voice as well. Um, as many parents who have at times been maybe insecure about their what you know their interactions with their children have no doubt experienced. Like you know, my youngest child likes to. For some reason, um, my oldest child is happy when I pick her up or drop her off wearing anything. But with my youngest child, I have to be very careful about how I dress for school drop off and. Wow. Yeah, I can't wear can't wear workout clothing. It's not ex- <laughs> no. Wow, <laughs> but even parents will talk about when a child prefers one parent over the other, and you know that the baby it's they're in this they're you know a toddler or a baby still, and we take it personally, and then we that chatter begins like what did I do wrong? Why don't they like me? So I, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so so clearly, like you are playing a role in shaping how your children view the world, how they interpret it, how they make sense of it, and how they talk to themselves. And so that's an enormous responsibility. Um, now, I do want to say that that doesn't mean that we always have to give positive, affirming messages to our children, and we can't be mm. uh, critical with compassion. I think this is a misnomer, the idea that all critical thoughts are dysfunctional. There's a difference between Uh, engaging in self-critique and getting stuck in it, right? Like it can be useful. I would argue very useful for me to be able to recognize, yeah, I really screwed up that talk or "Hmm, it could have gone better in that situation. Because when I have that awareness, what it does is it provides me with an opportunity to learn from that experience and then improve. And so if, if, you know, you're, you're trying to continually only experience positive emotions and no negative emotions, you're not going to have those kinds of learning experiences. And I think that can stifle growth. What we want to avoid is, is having children and ourselves getting stuck in those negative thought loops, right? So, so the, so the challenge I think behind parenting in many ways is how do you be positive, supportive, uplifting, but 
when you need to give corrective feedback, you can do it in a, in a compassionate, supportive sense, um, not to delude children that um, everything is always going to be, you know, cupcakes, marshmallows. If only, right? <laughs> you, you touched upon the external factors, and now I'm thinking a child becoming a teenager and social media being part of their environment and their lives and friends. How does it chatter change and how is it affected by these types of things in the environment? Well, um, I think of social media as a, it is a new kind of environment and the environments aren't good or bad. Whether they help or harm us when it comes to our chatter and our well-being depends on how we navigate those environments, what we do, who we engage with. If you think about the offline world, um, either, you know, you can, you can engage in this offline world in which we live in ways that, that harm you, right? You go to the wrong neighborhoods, talk to the wrong people the wrong ways, you can get into trouble. Um, or you could benefit from this offline world, like, you know, just do the flip side, right places, right people, right ways of interaction. What's fascinating to me with respect to parenting is that parents and our caregivers, they're socializing us from a very young age. They're teaching us how to navigate this offline world to help us um, um, benefit from it optimally, right? Our, we're teaching our kids how to behave, what to do, where to go, how to think, how to deal with problems in this world. Um, and, and, you know, that those messages we're getting from parents were passed down to them from their cultures and their own learning experiences. Now, if we transport ourselves to social media, we've got this new ecosystem. You do lots of different things. You go to different places. You can interact with different people. You can do different things. But we, up until recently, and even now, we have not had a really great playbook refined by years and years and centuries, arguably, of experience that tells us how to navigate this world effectively. So instead, what do we do? We've been stumbling through social media and we've been hitting landmines along the way, landmines in the form of cyberbullying, trolling, um, curating our networks in ways that like expose us to these incredible lives of other people that make us feel really unaccomplished even when we are. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so those are some landmines that can detract from the positive features of social media, like the opportunity of social media to keep us abreast of what's going on in our social environment, both near and far, our networks, you know, social media gives us opportunities to help other people, give them support and also to acquire it. And so I think the, um, what parents can do here is start informing themselves of, hey, what are the healthy versus harmful ways of interacting with social media? And then start educating your, your kids about it because we do at this point have some insight into what those healthy and harmful practices are. And I think it's only going to get um, better, those insights, as time goes on. I love that that view of it, too, that we're not just focusing on the negative part of it. Um, I know you have to go in a few minutes, so I'd like to finish off by um, quickly understanding how do you study chatter in the lab or in research and let us and let the viewers or sorry, and let the listeners know um, how they can reach you, how they can buy your book. And if there are any studies available, I'm sure we're always looking for, for participants in studies. I don't know if you are right now, but I'd love to learn that from you as well. Sure. So. You know, we adopt a multi-method approach in the lab and we study chatter from a lot of different angles. Um, we do behavioral experiments where we bring people in the lab, we induce emotion and we ask stress and we ask people to 
think about their experiences in different ways, using different kinds of tools, some of which I talked about today. Um, sometimes we'll track people as they're living their lives, we'll ping them throughout the day on their, on their cell phones, ask them whether they're experiencing chatter, how they feel, what tools have they used to manage it, and then looking to see um, how do these tools work really when they're activated organically in daily life? Um, how do they impact people's chatter as it unfolds over time? We'll do, we'll do neuroscience experiments where we bring people into the fMRI or ERP lab to see what are the different patterns of neural activity that underlie different ways of thinking about painful experiences and, and, and some of these different tools. And we'll do these kinds of studies with, with kids, with adults, with clinical populations. So, um, so we really try to be comprehensive um, in, in the way we study this, looking at it from lots of different angles. And the idea is that the more, the more glances we can get at this phenomenon and at these different tools, the better our understanding will be of, of, of how chatter works and how it can be controlled. Um, if people want to learn more um, about this book or research, uh, the best place to go is, is my website, www.ethancross.com. That's cross with a K, K-R-O-S-S. Often that gets, that gets butchered. <laughs> um, and you could get info on the book, on the research that went into it, on me, and um, and there are links to uh, the my lab website as well there, where there's a deeper dive into some of the research. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on this Saturday, which we know is the busy day <laughs> with family. I appreciate your time and absolutely love the book. And I know that it'll be um, a valuable resource to a lot of parents and people. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, and uh, and I hope it does help uh, parents because I'm one of them. And I've benefited from some of this stuff. So I hope it will help others too. Um, take care. Thank you. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the Cures Your Own podcast and to leave a review. See you next time.